Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 11. Today I'm talking to Abby Thiel, and I normally introduce the guest at this point, but I want to just segue off for a second and talk to you, my listeners, before I do that, and also introduce the guest. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. I've been doing these podcasts for, I'd say, five months now, and I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to so many wonderful people. A lot of people ask me what the payoff is for the podcast, and I have to tell them that I don't make any money at this, and it's not something I do to really enrich myself business-wise. But the one thing that I really get from this podcast is the pure pleasure of getting to talk to such wonderful friends um, that I've made through the podcast. And it's just really nothing but pure joy on my part to get to interview every single person I've interviewed since the beginning. Uh, When I interviewed Terry Barr, who I consider a great friend, and I really wish I had done this years ago because... There's really been nothing better than getting to talk and share with people from all over the globe. And I feel so blessed by this podcast. And I just want to share that to my listeners um, who have reached out to me and talked to me, uh, who I'd love to hear from, by the way. Um, So please do contact me if you you want to, because I really do love hearing from you. And I love all feedback, Uh, even suggestions on how I can improve the podcast. I'm always happy to hear those. This guest, uh, today's guest, Abby Thiel, I really enjoyed talking to her as well. And just the interesting things that we got to talk about were just tremendous. And I have to remind myself how lucky I am to do this. And even tomorrow, I'm interviewing a cookbook author who I never thought I'd get a chance to talk to, and I'm really nervous. I've been nervous a few times recently talking to some big names because some of these people are big, and getting a chance to do this is just... It's an honor. It's like a huge honor. And I have to pinch myself sometimes to realize how lucky I am. Uh, Abby the Thiel, the food scientist, is somebody I've seen on YouTube a lot. So it's such a weird disconnect to see somebody and enjoy their content. And then you talk to them and they're just normal people. And it's really surreal. But I do love it. Um, I love talking to Abby. She's so friendly. Such a nice person. She's a food scientist, food blogger, and a YouTuber. If you haven't seen her YouTube channel, please check it out. She also writes on Medium, so her articles are really good. She always really gets to the, the heat, uh, the, the meat of a lot of important matters regarding food science. And I could talk to her about the food science all day. And, you know, I'd love to have her back on the program again because she was so fun to talk to. She's currently a researcher and lecturer in Wageningen University in the Netherlands. I probably butchered that, sorry. Originally, she's from Wisconsin, and she received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she studied the microstructure of ice cream and whipped cream. That sounds like that's got to have been fun. In her free time, Abby's busy FaceTiming her nieces and nephews back in the States, like you do. So um, I want to encourage you to check out her content on YouTube and on Medium. But next, we have my conversation with her, which I hope you'll enjoy. So I'm going to have to segue into that. And until then, here we go. 
Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Abby, the food scientist from YouTube on the show. Abby, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited. So Abby, tell us about yourself, your career, education, and how you got started as a food scientist. Thanks, Dean. So as you mentioned, I'm a food scientist. I teach and do research at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. But before I moved here, I actually did all my education back in Wisconsin. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my bachelor's in food science through my PhD in food science, actually. I was at uh, UW-Madison. And that is where I found food science before I was a college student. I had never heard of it, um, but I discovered it as at a major in, you know, Madison, Wisconsin. Very nice. Um, you have a YouTube channel and you write articles about food science on Medium. What was your impetus to write about food science and start a YouTube channel? So I actually started my blog first. Um, it's a bit easier to hide when behind the writing. Uh, YouTube is a different story. But a couple things were happening in my life when I started my blog that sort of spurred it. So at the time, I was supposed to be writing my PhD dissertation. And I say supposed to because it wasn't going super well. Um, like. Writing the dissertation is like a very big challenge. I basically did five to six years of research and now I was supposed to sit and write it all up and that was gonna be like the last hurrah and then I was gonna be done. Um, but it's a very overwhelming task and oh, yeah. I was just dreading it like every day waking up and I was just supposed to sit and write. And I was not writing, like I would not physically type words. And so um, I was really struggling with trying to write my dissertation. And like at that time, I would tell you, I hated writing. I was a very bad writer and I never thought I would be a good writer. Um, wow, that's amazing because you really are. Yes. I mean, you're so good at it. <laughs> I can't believe you were ever actually worried about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like if you would have asked me in this time period, I would be like, I'm a terrible writer. I never learned to, I felt like I never learned to write. And it's funny because I have been in school my whole life. Like I had learned so much. And for some reason I thought I could not learn to write. So it, it seems silly, but you know, I was, I was not uh, doing super well with the dissertation. And I can't remember who gave me the advice, but someone told me like, maybe you need to try writing about something you enjoy. Like maybe writing about something you find fun is going to help you like learn the process of, of doing this. And to be honest, I didn't think that was gonna work, but that's why I started writing my blog is because I love food science and I think it's super interesting. And so by like picking fun topics, I finally started to like get in the flow of like writing and like, I can actually do this. It's like one step at a time. And so it was really like my blog and later YouTube came out of my like struggle to write my PhD dissertation. And actually at the same time, I started dating my current boyfriend who is a biochemist by PhD. So we both are very sciencey and interested in the same things. And before he met me, he's like, I didn't know food science was an option. Like, 
Yeah. Maybe my life would be different if I had heard of food science. Right. Like, you know, it's just not a well-known major. And so he was really urging me, like, you got to keep, you got to like, keep doing these blog posts. Like people would really like this. Like I'm really into this and I've never heard of it before. And so he kind of became like my personal cheerleader. Like, like every time I was like, maybe I should stop. Like I'm doubting, you know, what am I like, should I really keep doing this? He was like, the encourager and was like my proofreader and my editor, like, <laughs> you know, the person who was always backing me up. It's funny you mentioned this because I work with dissertation students every day. And um, part of, I think half my job is being a cheerleader for them. But, mm -hmm. but they're all brilliant and they're all wonderful and have great dissertations, but they all start panicking and they're like, I'm a failure, I'm a fraud, I can't mm -hmm. do this. And I'm like, no, 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 everybody goes through this. You're totally normal. And I talk them down from the ledge of quitting. And yes, so. absolutely. I think, I mean, all of grad school is very hard, oh, yeah. but the end part, the dissertation part is the hardest. And, you know, I knew this going in because my friends who were further along than me had written a dissertation and I had seen them during that entire process and knew it was just dreadful, oh, yeah. but it's, it's one thing when someone else is in it and when you're, you're in that. <laughs> I considered getting my PhD for a second and then I started working with PhD students and mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I'm too old for this at this point. I'm not doing it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, so I had kind of a unique experience in that I jumped right in. Like I started grad school a month after I finished my bachelor's degree. Yeah. And like, I look back now and I'm like, oh my goodness, I was like 23 and I had no idea I was going to spend the next six years of my life doing like all this work. Like I didn't even know what I wanted to do at the time where I wanted to end up. Like it's, it's funny how it happens. Yeah, no, it's I, I, I hear that from so many students and it's such a common refrain that like they think, oh, I'll just get it done in a couple of years. And I'm like, uh, no, it's going to take a little longer than that. Right. Or a lot of people are like, well, I don't have a plan or I lost my job. So now school is like my backup plan. Right. And I'm like, oh, that, <laughs> I don't think that's going to turn out well. Grad school no. is really hard. No. It shouldn't be a backup plan. No, absolutely not. <laughs> So this may sound like an obvious question, but I want to ask and get your take on this. What exactly is the study of food science? Yes, I love this question. I get it so often. <laughs> yes. So food science, even when I first heard of food science, I was like, I think this is made up. Like this seems too <laughs> good to be true. But then someone explained it to me and I was like, duh, there's science behind food. So what food science is, is basically you start maybe like where food is grown in a field, on a farm, wherever we are, food initially starts in the food supply. And that's where food scientists responsibilities start. So they, how do you grow it? How do you harvest it? How do you transport that food? Do you get it into a manufacturing plant or a factory? And then you think, well, does it have to be heated or cut or, you know, processed in any way to be safe? 
And then further down the line, you have food scientists who are making like food products. Like maybe you're making it into a TV dinner. Maybe you're making it into a snack. So you think like what ingredients have to be added and how do we make this on like a very large scale? And then after that, you go to packaging. How do we keep this food safe? How do we keep it from not getting stale? You know, what type of material is correct? And finally, you need to transport it to the grocery store shelf, usually. Um, so it's really this like really long list of responsibilities where once you think about it, you're like, of course we need scientists behind that process and making sure it goes smoothly. But, but until you learn about food science, like it doesn't seem to cross your mind. Right. What industries can you work in as a food scientist when you get out of college? Yes, there actually is a really big job market, which is funny because food science is not a big major or a, like a very well-known major. But I always tell people, if you take something in your kitchen, whatever you purchase from the grocery store, if you turn that container around, look at what company made that and food scientists work there. They probably have a lot of different food scientists working at those companies. So the, the main places like um, any food company like General Mills, um, Mars Wrigley, Nestle, PepsiCo, those are some like big ones we tend to know. There are other areas you could work in though. There are a lot of companies that are ingredient manufacturers. So they don't make the final product. They might just make one ingredient. Like they make, might just make whey protein or skim milk powder. Um, a good example is actually my first internship was at more of an ingredient company. And um, this company was called Dairy Concepts and they make like the cheese powder you would find in like your mac and cheese right. or like a cheese powder you might have on like spray on a snack or something. But yeah. that was all they did. They didn't make like the mac and cheese or the other ingredients. So you, you can sort of specialize like that. Um, and then there's one other sector. I'm blanking for one second. <laughs> okay. And the last sector is more like food service, like your big restaurants or your oh, yeah. Starbucks, your McDonald's. And this is sort of an interesting career path because it's sort of like part culinary menu development but also a lot of science because, you know, this is at such a large scale and it can't make people sick. Like it has to be safe, which is right. like a hard thing to do when you're making like tons of food each day. So I think people are always surprised that there's a, a lot of jobs out there for food scientists. A lot of my friends had jobs before they graduated. Yeah, I, it's funny. I worked in the food service for a bit where I worked in a kind of a restaurant that had a lot of, while we made a lot of fresh stuff, there was a lot of stuff that was pre-packaged and made. Mm -hmm. And it was, and we were told again and again, you're not chefs, you're not cooks, make it exactly it's planned. It's designed this way. Don't mess around and improvise. This is not, this is a science. It's not made for improvisation. And we, we had to get that and we understood it over time, but like, you forget like in a lot of food preparation now there is a science to it and you can't really mess around with it it's not like cooking raw ingredients 
Right. Oh, I'm so appreciative that someone told you that because I totally agree. It's like, it has to be at this temperature, right. like no colder, like hold it at this temperature. And if you don't know the reasoning, you're like, mm, no, why? like we don't have to, but then it's like, no, that was the process because of like a certain bacteria that can now survive and make people sick. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause they're really upping the training too and food safety and as well, like you really are expected to know a lot more about it on even on the lowest levels, it seems like, mm-hmm. whereas I'm not sure what it was like before. So I, I imagine right. it's a very rewarding uh, field to work in food science. I think it'd be thrilling. How rewarding is it to work in? I love it. So I, I did not go into industry. I teach at university, which I think is very rewarding. I love teaching. I also do research, but on the day-to-day basis, it's really the teaching that, you know, you go home feeling like you've, you've, you know, helped someone. But one of my favorite parts is all my friends that went into industry, like whenever they have a product launch, they'll tell me or post a picture. And so like when I go to the grocery store, I just go like, oh, my friend Julia made this. And like, oh, oh, there's a new Skittles flavor. I wonder if Chrissy worked on this. Like, it's just like show and tell. Like if anyone's with me, I will be like, oh, my friend made this and like show them, you know, it's it's really cool to like know the people who are making your food. That's kind of fun. I, I imagine that would be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Much of what you talk about on your um, YouTube videos and in your, your blog and your articles on Medium are the mechanics of how and why certain things affect cooking and the food we eat. Do you think that today there is more of an interest in the mechanics of food and food production that there was in, say, the 70s when everything was just taken for granted? I feel like people are getting more into the mechanics of it now since the pandemic. What, what is your take on that? So I think there's probably a lot of factors that are coming into play, but I do agree. There seems to be this resurgence of people really interested in how is food made? Why is it made that way? What ingredients? But I think part of that is how family dynamics have changed. You know, I would argue like my parents' generation or my grandparents, like someone was always staying home and doing the food prep and knew where their food came from and knew how to make it into these different Um, meals like that was usually the woman's responsibility in the family so there was someone responsible maybe they didn't know the science behind it but they knew how to keep their food safe like I uh, I was talking to my grandma after I posted a YouTube video about why milk is pasteurized and she was telling me like oh I liked that video because my mom she grew up on a family farm she's like my mom actually would take the milk from the farm and heat it up on the stove. And I don't think she ever knew why we did that, but like I learned to do that and I did that with my kids and now I like know the science. So I think as you know, families are mostly two working parents now or a single working parent, there's no one who like has the role of like chef slash food scientist slash cook, like that knowledge has been kind of lost over time. And now as you sort of become an adult and you realize like, I'm pretty detached from my food, which I eat three times a day. Like, why don't I know anything about food, which is so ingrained in our culture and so important to our existence. Like, I feel like people are coming back to like, 
I need to know what's in here, why it's in there, how is it made? Like you, you have this big realization. Yeah, I mean, I, I experienced that. I think that the one thing that brings to mind food science for me is when I have a failure. So I've been doing mm-hmm. a lot of canning over the past several years. And when you fail at canning, you start to go nuts because it's a waste of food and you feel bad yes. about it. And then you're like, well, why did that fail? And you go back to the books and start really doing the research. Right. No, absolutely. And like, you have to imagine now that sounds very frustrating, but imagine you worked at a company and each batch was like 1000 times bigger. Oh, no. oh my God. No, no, no. That'd be <laughs> right. awful. <Thanks>. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned something briefly that I, it's not in something we discussed, but I went on to bring it up. Uh, whole milk is basically becoming a thing in the country again. Uh, what is your take on that as somebody who's a food scientist? You know, I think when I was growing up, I always had skim milk. I think that was the big to do because I asked my mom, I was like, I didn't have um, whole milk until I was like an adult. Like I did not know what it tasted like. I thought skim milk was how it tasted. And so I asked my mom and she's like, that was like the big trend when you were young. That's what they told us to give to you. Yeah. And so a lot of times when it comes to like these different food products or slight variations, I honestly think a lot of it is trendy. And yeah. it's like now fat is good. Like a certain amount of fat is good where you know when I was younger it's like cut the fat from the kids diet. Like fat is bad. And it's just like this cycle of like different trends coming and going. Yeah, and I um, I think they're trying to reintroduce raw milk into the United States too, and I noticed that was, but I I haven't seen it, so it's like weird. It's like I know they're talking about it, but I haven't seen any raw milk, and I'm not sure how that's going to work out in stores. Like, it seems like there'd be a lag time there because talking about it, making laws about it, and then actually doing it seems to be like a disconnect. Yeah, raw milk is where I like draw the line. Like I'm not a supporter of raw milk. Um, I think at the national level right now, it's illegal, but some states it's legal or some weird setup like that. Um, When it comes to raw milk, like the reason we don't drink raw milk is that there's bacteria, yeast and molds that will make you sick. Like you can get like tuberculosis, like you could die from drinking that, which sounds like really like I'm exaggerating, but people have died from drinking like raw milk. (laughs) So I, I am curious about that, but I would say just get pasteurized milk. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because people talk about it now, like they really want it. They're like, I want my rights and I want to have, but my grandparents in their time, they were happy to have pasteurized milk. Mm-hmm. they could get it so like they'd be like are you insane like it's weird how right generational differences will bring up these things I don't know it's it's odd I agree like like I said my grandma was like my grandma who is probably like 85 was like her mom pasteurized their milk like like they like you know this has been done for a long time so it's uh it's very interesting but I definitely think in the U.S. and probably a lot of Europe, we really take for granted like our safe food supply. Like when we eat a meal, we don't worry, oh, is this going to make me sick? I don't ever think about that when I eat because it's so rare because we have such a safe food supply. 
Yeah, we're kind of entitled that way. I think when, mm -hmm. when you grow up with something and you're entitled, you forget other people don't have the same luxury. Yes, exactly. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So besides food science, I mean, in tandem with food science, you've had some wonderful articles that I've seen where you've tackled issues in food terminology and how we name a food and how we look at it, depending on the naming. You took on the term ancient grains recently, which is a hot button topic I see in food writing a lot. Care to talk about that for a bit? Yes. So this is definitely one of my pet peeves that I'll probably get a little excited about. That's okay. It really annoys me when terms or wording on packaging is deceiving because the average consumer believes anything printed on a food packaging is the truth. Like, why would that not be the case? But there are some terms where maybe it's not an outright lie, but it's, it's very deceiving. And this is why I wrote about ancient grains. Um, another good example that I already wrote about is natural, the, the term natural. Yes. But ancient, yes. I grew up <laughs> with that, yeah. Grains, yeah. <laughs> the problem with ancient grains is that it's on so many food products now. And I think just throwing that term on there allows companies to charge this premium price when there is not a definition of ancient grains, right? So for many food products, we actually have a legal definition. Like it has to meet these ingredients or these standards, et cetera. Ancient grains, there's no standard. There's no definition. And what that means is any food company, if they decide, hey, this, this product, this product is an ancient grain. Well, they can do that. They're not wrong because there is not a definition, but you can basically slap it on any product then. And there oh, yeah. is no meaning. <laughs> so, like, uh... Uh, you know, it just is like, you know, if one thing is sort of a misconception, that kind of throws the rest of the food label into, you know, is it true or is it false? Yeah, like natural and everything, like you said, I mean, we have these terms in there. It's kind of like P.T. Barnum's This Way to the Egress. It's, mm -hmm. It reminds me of that. Like we're, we're being fooled into thinking something's extra and paying more for yes. it when it really is something we've had all along. We just didn't know it. Right. And one of our guests, yeah, one of our guests talked about that. Roxana Jolipat, she is a new cookbook mm -hmm. using various grains, and she has a bakery in Los Angeles where she uses all kinds of grains. She was very similar. She bridled at the term. She's like, it's all around us. We have these right. grains everywhere. They're not like ancient. They're here now. We're using them. Right. <laughs> no, it's it, it's frustrating because I think food is expensive as is, and I only have to buy food for myself. I'm not buying for a whole family. So it's like when these sort of terms then ask for like these higher prices, I'm just like, oh, 
Oh yeah, that's a pet peeve of mine. I remember when I was young, you couldn't pay people to buy kale. And kale <laughs> was like nothing. It was like five cents a pound or something. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Suddenly it becomes popular and now it's expensive. And I'm like, right. are you kidding me? This was on the, mm. uh, the decoration at the salad bar. Nobody was eating this, you know? Right. Like I said, everything's a trend. If you can make it trendy, people will pay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, I don't know. Growing up in the 70s, they had all this unusual things they were creating. And I imagine it was kind of a heyday for food science because they were mm. developing things. And we had like Ting, X, Ting instant breakfast yes. drink and things like that. And they were introducing all these things. And it was kind of fun, but... It, I don't know. It was, it's very, you wouldn't see the same thing now. I don't think people are really clamoring to get Tang now, but you know, it was a right. big deal. No, no, the food science definitely, you know, sways towards whatever is trendy in the market or whatever consumers are calling for. Absolutely. Now there's a term that's used. Um, you, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. And so I, I remember I saw a documentary on how margarine was made. And mm -hmm. after I watched that revolting process, I've never touched margarine since and never will again. So do you, have you had anything like that as a food scientist where you saw something and you're like, well, I'm not eating that anymore. <laughs> you know, my most distinct memory, this must have been my junior year of college. And that year you take your first food microbiology class. So it's basically what microorganisms and food can make people sick? What are the symptoms, the diseases, that sort of thing. And I was pretty excited because I saw in the course syllabus, we had two class periods where we we're going to watch a documentary. And it was like, yes, because that never happens in college. We never get to watch like movies or anything. It's lecture, 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 like there's no free time. And so I show up to the first day of the documentary, like, oh, I'm relaxed, excited. What are we going to learn about? And it's a documentary on mad cow disease. Oh, and yeah, that yeah. was really disturbing. So it was, you know, this is like a terrible disease and it starts in the cows and it, it sort of um, degrades the brain and the spinal cord slowly. And so it's all these videos of cows like slowly falling and limping and oh. not being able to get up and it's like oh like cows are kind of cute animals like they're these big like creatures and it's just this documentary about how they're slowly declining because of this disease and then the ending was very, very rarely, but it can happen that um, it crosses into humans. It's called variant Creutzfeldt-Jacobs disease, but yeah. essentially it's the same thing. And it ended with an interview of someone who had this disease. So their brain is slowly like stopped not working. And I, I did not eat beef for months after that. Like it just was hard a very hard documentary to to watch like very disturbing no one can blame you there i think that would have the same effect on anybody actually <laughs> now yes what do you think the biggest because we're always hearing terms um when we go to the store i mean we're, we're assailed with terms like low salt fat free um high protein all these buzzwords nowadays what are some of the biggest fallacies people have about protein, sugar, salt, et cetera? You know, the, the thing I've learned in the food industry is 
sort of back to something you were probably told as a kid that like you, you just need to eat a diverse diet. You don't need to buy everything high in protein or, you know, low in fat. You just have to eat everything in moderation. So you don't always need these like specialized, you know, foods. You just need to eat fresh fruits and vegetables. You need to get proteins from different sources. You, you know, you need to eat different grains because they have different nutrients in them. And so I think people, and because and the food industry makes a lot of like, this drink is for your brain. Like, right. you know, it's a lot of marketing yeah. stuff that's like, this will help you sleep. And it's like, it probably doesn't. If it was that easy to get to sleep, like that, you know, we just can't make a beverage that, you know, really has <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but like, I can't think of any like huge fallacies. I think in general, actually one of the biggest fallacies has to do with the food industry in whole. I think it tends to get like, Sometimes when I say I'm a food scientist, I'm not surprised if people have a very negative reaction because I think the food really? industry gets, um, like kind of has like this reputation as like a villain, like oh, after yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. documentary or a book comes out, it kind of, uh, paints the food industry as a whole, as like this scheming group of people that are trying to make you obese and filling our kids with sugar. Um, but actually the consumers are the ones that drive the food industry. I like right. to tell pe people every time you buy a product, you are essentially voting for that product. Right. So every time you vote, you're saying like, I want this product to stay and I want more of this. The, like, the food industry is a business. There's no doubt of that, but they want to make a profit. And so by you buying certain products, you're driving them that way to make more of that. And so consumers have a lot of power and, and the industry will go to where the consumers want, you know, want their food to come from. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, We're, we fall prey to stuff. Even I do it. I remember I bought some uh, nootropic items recently, a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. I have ADHD severely. So I thought this will fix my brain issue and yeah. it, didn't, it didn't do anything. I felt like I, I felt like a, a rube who had walked into the carny and got suckered, you know? So it's funny. It's so easy. Even if you're intelligent, I think you can fall prey to any of this stuff. Cause when you see foods, like oh, if you're hurried in the market, you mm -hmm. see low fat, low salt, whatever high protein, you're like, oh, and you just throw it in the basket. You're not really thinking you're not cognizant. Cause I think a lot of times we just want to get through the process and eat our dinner and go to bed and go back to work the next day. So we're not really cognizant, but the slowdown of the quarantine, I think has made a lot of us kind of more like, what am I buying? What is this? Mm -hmm. Why am I buying this? You know? Absolutely. And I think it just comes down to, we try to do what's easiest, right? Like if I, if this drink could cure my problem, that would be amazing. Like, yeah. that, you know, that's just human, human nature. Yeah. Well, hence the popularity of coffee. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you this one last question and thank you for indulging me in this. My wife and I have been discussing, well, my wife and my kids and I have been discussing cochineal and shellac, uh, the coatings mm -hmm. and additives for candy, basically all candies. It seems like, can you tell us a little bit about those uh, insect derived items? 
Yes. So personally, I think these ingredients are super interesting. So these are so um, cochineal, cochineal. It can also be called carmine. I usually just say carmine because it's the easiest one to pronounce. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so this is a red colorant and it's a natural colorant, which is, you know, people are driving the food industry more towards natural ingredients. And um, it's just this type of insect makes this sort of red secretion. And we basically use that to color foods naturally. And I think um, a couple, it might be a couple of years ago now, Starbucks got into sort of this big debacle because I think one of their pink frappuccinos was colored with carmine. Yeah. And people, I think people did not realize where that came from. To be honest, like my food scientist brain is saying like, but it's a natural color. That is what you wanted. It is produced by this insect. And then we use the insect to get this color. Like, can it get more natural than that? But I think maybe you can tell me the perspective of a non-food science person. Is it just that it's gross that bugs are used? <laughs> well, see, I, I'm, I've eaten bugs before, so it doesn't bother yeah. me. I, I, um, I've known people who are, are people that were bug cooking aficionados and I've been mm -hmm. to dinners where I've had like cricket tacos and cricket cookies and yes. things like that. So I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. I think, I think a lot of people might think it's gross, but I'm like, Hey, everything you eat has some amount of bugs in it. So you need to yes. get over that. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's it's very interesting because I think insects in the next couple of years, like I think in the next couple of years, the food industry will have a pretty big reckoning with sustainability and how are we going to feed everyone in this world. And I think insects, there's a lot of really cool startups that are utilizing insects and like insect protein and mealworms and yeah. turning them into food ingredients because from a sustainability standpoint, there's a lot of arguments that if we got our protein from insects, we could save like a ton of water, land, energy, that this actually might be where we go in the future. Um, but yeah, Western culture tends to think insects are, you know, not, not food, but that's not everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's funny, I've had uh, cricket, I recently I was uh, promoting some cricket protein bars Honestly, I couldn't mm -hmm. tell you the difference between them and a regular protein bar. They were exactly right. the same. I think if people just tried it, I think they'd get over it pretty quickly. Right. And I think, like I said, I think this is going to change very soon. When I was teaching last year, we do like a research project for the senior students. And like, this is what they're interested in. They're making um, insect protein into granola bars. So I think as it's going to become more and more normalized. So I, I just want to throw this out as an extra question. Um, mm -hmm. We can edit it out if you don't want. Um, I uh, just, what's, is there anything really big that you're excited about in food science right now that you want to talk about? Oh, yes. I'm very into cellular agriculture recently, ah. which is basically uh, you still need like a cow, say. But from that cow, you take some of the muscle stem cells and you try to grow them in like a petri dish in a lab and you can grow thousands and thousands of these cells which are you know it's meat you can basically turn it into a piece of meat and so the thinking is if we could make this work at an industrial scale we no longer would have to raise you know 
thousands of cows or chickens or any animal just to slaughter. You, you would need a couple still to get the cells from, but it's this idea of growing your meat in, in a lab. It's usually called cultivated meat. I've heard cultured meat too. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I've seen a lot uh, uh, being written about it and I, it seems like it's an up and coming thing. And it's very exciting to me because I'm seeing all these meat replacement products that are coming out that are pretty nice. They're really good products. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like people complain and grouse about it, but I'm like, if you've eaten a McDonald's hamburger, that doesn't seem like real hamburger to me. Like it's not like a hamburger. Right. It's, I, it's probably mostly not meat. There's some yeah. meat in there, but it has a lot of other ingredients. And yeah. I love those hamburgers and I don't care because I think they're really delicious. But yeah. <laughs> I, I worked in a restaurant where half the um, taco filling was soy, but right. there was a reason for that. It had to be that way. If we did hundred percent beef, it wouldn't have worked. And right. explaining it to people who are not cooking and not there, actually doing the work they don't get it they're like well i want 100 beef i'm like right. you would not have you would not have liked it you would ask for the soy back if you could get it right you think this tastes better that's why we do it this way the texture is better you know that sort of thing yeah. absolutely no i think um cellular agriculture seems to be a really hot topic and then of course all the plant-based like you mentioned like the plant-based meat substitutes um those seem to be trying to take take away some of the traditional meat industry but i think it will be very interesting well abby i want to thank you for being here today i've really enjoyed getting to talk to you this has been really fun this has been a blast thank you i hope you enjoyed my conversation with abby the food scientist i really enjoyed getting to record that episode with her and I loved getting to talk about food science with her because it's something that really interests me. Next week, we'll be talking to Leticia Ann Clark, who wrote, among other books, La Vida e Dolce, which is a wonderful Italian pastry cookbook. Um, next week, we're also going to have Ashley Camora, who runs Liquefied Juice Company here in the Bay Area. So tune in next week for those two guests. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Until then, happy cooking.